know about these men that Enoch, the seventh, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which, it, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own desires. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we gather around your word, we pray that we would not gather mindlessly. Thank you for your word that is relevant and timely and timeless. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and it protects us and points out the pitfalls and the traps and the snares that are laid at our feet as we walk throughout life. Thank you for your loving kindness towards us and giving us your word so that we can hear you and be saved. Lord, please help us all to hear you this morning. Help us all to think your thoughts, to understand what you want us to understand and hear. Lord, help us not to turn away from the hard things. Thank you that you are such an awesome God in every way. May we tremble before you with reverence and godly fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are back in the first century. Use your imagination. Take yourself back to the first century and you are a person who lives in a city called Derby. That's in southern modern day Turkey. You live in a city called Derby. It's, you live in a, you're, you're, now put yourself at a time before the book of Jude has been written. There is no book of Jude. It has not been written. And you're living in Derby. And you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You put your faith in Jesus Christ because some Christians shared the gospel with you one day. You were coming out of your pagan temple and there were some Christians that were talking to people out there and you got into a conversation with them. And those Christians shared with you about your sin. They shared with you about Judgment Day. They shared with you about the love of God. They shared with you about the recent history in Jerusalem that Jesus... Uh, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and he caused a big stir, but he was actually the Messiah. They shared with you some Old Testament prophecies and you became a Christian when you listened to those Christians sharing these things with you. Partly because you were guilty. You had been for a long time in your life feeling guilt over the things that you had done in your life. You also were afraid of the judgment day. You were afraid when the Christians were telling you about a day when God, the creator of all the earth, who isn't a God who lives in temples, who isn't an, a God that is worshipped with man's hand, he's going to judge the world one day, and you were afraid. 
But you are also attracted to this message of God's love, something that you've never experienced or known. The, the gods that you, that you know aren't loving gods. They're gods that you have to kind of appease. And you were, so you, you became a Christian because of guilt and fear of Judgment Day, but also you were attracted to this God of love. And it seemed to make sense that there was a God who wasn't worshipped by man's hands. These Christians who shared the gospel with you, they knew personally a man named Paul and a man named Barnabas, because it was Paul and Barnabas who had years ago come to, had come to Derby and founded the first Christian church there, and these, men's, these men were a part of that original Christian church. So they would also tell you about Paul, and they had some letters of Paul that they would let you read. And so you've read a few of the letters of Paul. You start going to those Christian meetings. They have regular gatherings on Sunday. Throughout the week, you come to uh, their home, and you have meals with them, and and also, once a week, there's a, a, what's called an agape feast or a love feast that you meet with all the Christians and you all bring some food. It's like a potluck. Well, it is a potluck, actually. It's exactly what it is. And you really enjoy your new companions and you really are excited about your relationship with God and your new knowledge with God. You're, you're learning a little bit about the Old Testament for the very first time. And this is how life is for you. Now, three years after you become a Christian, three years after you become a Christian, and these are going on, you're learning more and more as time goes on, a man comes, a man starts coming to your gatherings named Lucius. Lucius is very friendly. He's a super friendly guy. Lucius believes in Jesus, that Jesus is, is the Messiah. Lucius is very likable and he likes talking about God. He likes talking about these things. He especially likes talking about the love of God, which is why people like Lucius and, and Lucius is a very likable person because he loves to talk about how much God loves us. And Lucius, is, he says things like, in, in the meetings when there's gatherings, Lucius is often speaking up and he says things that are a little different. You haven't heard these things before, but... Things like Jesus' mission was to show mankind the love of the Father, to show mankind what the Father is like, to show mankind that God is a God of love and grace, and that God is not a vengeful God. That sounds kind of familiar, and it sounds good. You've heard things like that before, but Lucius is saying these things. God is a God of goodness and love and this is what Jesus came to show us that he's not a God of vengeance that God is not pleased with sacrifices that God is pleased with our trust in his love it sounds good Lucius is excited about sharing this God doesn't take pleasure in sacrifices in fact God does not even require sacrifices he just wants you to trust in his great love this seems good Lucius also starts saying things that create some conflict eventually. Because he starts saying things like, God does not send people to hell at all. People choose to separate themselves from God. God doesn't send anyone to hell. If a person is separated from God, it's because they're simply choosing to be separated from God. They make their own hell, in a sense. And when Lucius starts saying these things, eventually he starts getting into some disagreements with the elder, with the pastor at the gathering that you're involved with. And the pastor and Lucius kind of are disagreeing about that. The pastor saying, no, God, God sends people to hell. God judges people. 
It's not merely a choice someone makes to separate themselves from God. Time goes on more and more. And it seems like, well, it kind of started like with the small disagreements. Lucius becomes a little bit more outspoken. He starts saying things like, the devil is a liar for saying that he has any power. And if you believe that the devil has any power, then you're actually believing a big fat lie of the devil. He has no power. That's a great lie. More and more tension seems to be happening, uh, be be filling your your gatherings because there are people that are listening to Lucius and and liking what he's saying and there are people that are listening to the pastor and it seems like there's starting to be a bit of a division in your meetings. And And the pastor doesn't have the full Old Testament or New Testament with him. He doesn't have all the books. And so he's arguing, but he doesn't really have the full means to argue. It's sort of just the pastor's word versus Lucius's word. Things are getting worse. The agape feasts are not as pleasant anymore because of all the tension. And Lucius starts even saying that people who teach that God is a vengeful God who requires sacrifice in order to forgive, he starts saying that those who believe that are actually false teachers and are anti-Christ and anti-Christians for believing that. That, God, that An idea of God like that is barbaric. That's the way that the Greeks believe. That's the way that the pagans believe. That's the way that the Jews in their ignorance believe. Jesus came to show us that God is not a barbaric God who requires sacrifices and things like that to appease his wrath. God freely forgives. That's Jesus' message. Not through sacrifice. That was not the point of Christ's death, Lucius says. Lucius even receives a letter from a friend of his, and he, he's reading it and saying, look, uh, my other people are also teaching this too. This is the situation that you find yourself in when one day a letter arrives at your church. The pastor announces that a letter has come from Jerusalem. It's a cyclical letter. It wasn't written specifically to our church. It was written to all the churches. And it just so happens to be the letter of Jude. The letter from Jude. And while the gathering is there, the pastor reads this letter from Jude. And here's how it reads to your ears. As he opens up that scroll... Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn or exchange the grace of our God into lawlessness or aselgea and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, 
subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed." Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, for they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own desires. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there would be mockers following after their own ungodly desires. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our our Lord Jesus Christ, to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. Wow. The letter could not have been more timely, more relevant. It seemed to describe Lucius perfectly. And Lucius was furious when he heard this letter. And a big debate broke out. The letter gave the pastor the needed authority to show that Lucius, Lucius was false. He said, no, no, it's not just my word. This is what the apostles, this is what, Jew, this is what we've believed as Christians. After a few weeks of winning people back to the truth, Lucius leaves town with a few. And you sigh, a big sigh of relief. And the book of Jude will always be meaningful to you. How timely the book of Jude was seen by the early Christians. This is what the book of Jude was like 
to the early Christians. It was relevant because this is what was going on in their churches. It was intense. It was timely because it addresses specifically this issue of people denying that God's grace is righteous grace, that God's grace is not lawless, that God is a God of wrath, that God does require bloody sacrifice, that God does require a priesthood, that God does destroy people, that God is coming to execute judgment. And it exposes those pretenders who've snuck in, who aren't overtly denying Jesus, who aren't overtly denying God. It exposes them for exactly what they are. This is how it would have sounded to someone like you if you had lived in the first century, living in a a situation that this letter specifically addresses. It's the same for us, however, brothers and sisters, when we see the relevance of this letter and its timelessness for us in the 21st century. It's the same. In fact, it's worse today than it's ever been. Because today, more than it's ever been after 2,000 years, there are people who profess to be Christians just like Lucius. They profess to be Christians and they deny Christ and they deny our God because they take the grace of our God and they change it into something that isn't righteous at all. It's the same today. And when we see this, we'll see Jude in the same light that same relevance and timelessness. Bible issues don't just go away. There's no book in the Bible that has ceased to be relevant for us. The mankind is the same, the devil is the same, and there's been 2,000 years of the devil's activity and 2,000 years of man to do their thing. And here we are in the 21st century needing to hear this message of Jude again. It's important for us to grasp the outline of any book of the Bible that we read. Because books of the Bible aren't just a collection of sage sayings, like the book of Proverbs. I guess in the book of Proverbs there's not a huge amount of flow of thought there, although there is some. But the letters of the New Testament have a flow of thought. In order to understand them, it's essentially understand their outline. So, verse 1 to 3, Jude writes his introduction, greetings, but this is why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you to call you to arms. Verse 4, he gives an explicit statement of what the false teachers are doing. There are men who have crept into your church and what they're doing is they're turning God's grace into something that isn't grace. They're turning it actually into leniency or lawlessness. That God just forgives people in an unrighteous way without any respect to justice or law. This is what they are doing. In verse 5 to verse 10, Jude refutes this idea. And it is successfully refuted in verse 5 to 10. It is his refutation. In verse 11, he he compares and combines these godless men with the godless men, the notorious men in the past. Cain Balaam, Korah. He says, these guys are doing the exact same thing as what Cain, Balaam, and Korah did. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, in verse 12 to verse 19, he goes further into describing exactly what these false teachers are like. Exactly what they really are. How God sees them. Not how they appear on the surface. On the surface they don't look like this. They don't sound like this. They don't come across like this. But this is exactly what they are. 
In verse 20 to 23, he gives a prescription to the believers as to what to do. And then in verse 24 to 25, he concludes the letter with an encouragement. That's basically the flow of thought. It's the exact same thing today. If we find people teaching counterfeit grace, which we do, if we find people claiming to be Christians but denying the necessity for the cross in order for God to forgive and denying that God is a just God and a wrathful God and saying that God is just a nice God, a kind God who merely for, who just forgives because he just forgives, then what we need to do, we need to give the same refutation that Jude gave. This is as relevant today as ever. His argument stands today as ever. You can show people the history of God and say, hold on a second, you're saying God is not a wrathful God. You're saying God is not a uh, a judging God. You're saying God does not require sacrifice. But let's look at history and see the things that God has done. As relevant as ever. And we have the same prescription as we'll see when we get to that next week. What should we do in light of this? And we have also the same encouragement today, which we'll see when we get to it in a few weeks, that God is able to preserve us throughout these wars of lies and truth. So this morning we're going to look at verse 12 to verse 16. And we're going to talk about the description of these men, the description of the false teachers, what they are actually like. After connecting them with these notorious men of the past, Jude describes them in five intense and vivid pictures. Listen to what James Moffat says about these pictures. Sky, land, and sea are ransacked for illustrations of the character of these men. Isn't that interesting? Jude wants to describe these men in the most vivid way he can, to shock us awake, to show us exactly how God sees things. God sees things in a very intense way, doesn't he? For us, everything's kind of laid back and everything's kind of casual. But when God sees things, he sees things in an intense way. Jude wants us to show us this. And so he gets his pictures from nature. So urgent and so serious is the situation that Jude wants us to see them in this light. And all of these pictures have something in common. They're all deceiving. They're all pictures of deception. So let's look at these five pictures that Jude gives. The first one is this. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Now, some translations will say they're spots, but the correct translation from the Greek is they're hidden reefs. Now, you all should know what a hidden reef is, right? A hidden reef is rocks or cliffs or land that is submerged underwater and you can't see it. It's one of the great dangers for a, for a ship. If people are traveling on the waters, uh, everything can look on the surface clear, and so it's just full speed ahead and no worries because every, there's no obstacles in our path. But underneath the water, there's rocks or a, a, a submerged cliff that you don't even see. And all of a sudden, without any expectation, you hit this hidden reef and 
it's great, it's great, uh, it's damaging and it causes great danger. How many of you remember last year the sinking of the Costa Concordia, the uh, cruise ship that was on the news, right? That cruise ship, that exactly what happened. The, the cruise ship is going along the coast and all those people on that cruise ship are just enjoying a cruise, right? Cruise, a cruise is probably one of the most luxurious and wonderful things a person could probably, could probably do, right? All your food is, is there and the, you're seeing all these wonderful sights and you have leisure, there's no work. You're just enjoying yourself. Who expects to hit a hidden reef and suddenly the ship capsizes and 30 people perished? 30 people perished when the Costa Concordia hit the hidden reef. Now Jude says, this is what these men are like. They eat with you, but they're actually hidden reefs. They're eating in your love feasts, your potlucks, just like we do here at All Saints Church. The early Christians would have these feasts. And they come and they seem like Christians. They enjoy themselves. You enjoy them being there. But they're actually dangerous and damaging and destroying they seem fine, but there is real danger ahead. They will shipwreck people's faith because of what they believe or what they don't believe, because of what they hold to. So Jude is warning them, saying, these men are hidden reefs. What they believe, turning God's grace into, into lawlessness, is going to damage people's souls. This is not a non-essential. This is not, a person isn't a hidden reef if they eat with you, but they have a different eschatological point of view. Okay? <laughs> but a person is a hidden reef when they come and eat with you and they say they're Christians and they, believe, they profess to believe in grace and free forgiveness, but is not based upon the sacrifice of Christ. Not only do people need to be aware of them, but they themselves need to beware of their precarious situation. But Jude tells us that these men eat with you without fear. So we should be aware of them, but they should have fear too, but they don't have fear. They don't have the fear of God. They don't fear God and respect God's way and God's revelations and God's truth. But they also don't fear the dangerous situation that they themselves are in because there's coming a day when God is going to get rid of all hidden reefs. They don't fear the fact that they are condemned. The NIV in the Revised Standard Version translates this next part which says, caring for themselves, that they're literally shepherds who feed themselves. Shepherds who feed only themselves. This is almost a direct quotation out of Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 20, where God says to the shepherds of Israel, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed only themselves. It's almost an explicit quotation. And so what we see here is that these men are in fact teachers. Just like Lucius who shows up and he starts speaking and teaching and drawing people after themselves and contradicting what the pastor is saying, they are teachers who are feeding only themselves. Their teaching is not for the benefit of others, though it seems like it, though they bring it across that way. They think that they're going to help people. They think it's for the benefit of others. But they're actually only, Jude tells us, getting accolades themselves, drawing disciples after themselves, making themselves feel important, making themselves feel good. 
It's not for the benefit of others. And God will judge all such teachers who do not fear him and teach his word, even if it's not popular. One thing the Bible makes it very clear is preaching the cross is an offensive thing. Preaching the cross is not going to win you a lot of friends. Preaching the cross is not going to build you an enormous congregation. But preaching the cross is the only truth that can save a man's soul and that can save your own soul. And so shepherds are called to feed the flock of God. That's their main responsibility. If you are taking oversight of the congregation, you are to feed the flock of God, not yourself, but you're to preach the word of God for the benefit of people because that's why God has given us his word. God has given us his word to benefit us. God has given us his word to save us. He sent forth his word and healed them. He tells us, look and believe and be saved, right? He tells us that for our good. The second way that Jude describes these men, after getting a sea picture, a picture from the sea, he gets a picture from the air. And he says, these men are clouds without water. Now, even in the age of sprinklers, rain is still really important, isn't it? If there was no rain, it doesn't matter how many sprinkler systems you have, we would all be in really big trouble. Our survival depends upon rain, even in the 21st century. We will eventually run out of uh, water bottles at the convenience store. (laughs) Our survival depends on rain. Rain has always been important. You've probably heard of rain dances that indigenous religious religions do to get rain because their survival depends on it. One of the curses that God threatens when Israel disobeys his law is that he'll make the heavens brass and send them no rain. And God has done that in the past. Rain is very important to our survival. Rain is essential for our life. And so clouds come by and we well, most of us in the modern world don't really notice much, right? But if in the past, uh, you know, you couldn't go to the convenience store and just buy water, you didn't have a hose you could plug into, the water comes by in the clouds and everyone's saying, ooh, I hope it rains, right? I hope it rains. And when it rains, they're glad. But sometimes a cloud would come by and it would seem like it would rain and then the wind would just push it on by and there'd be no rain. They get their hopes up, but their hopes are dashed. And this is what Jude means when he says there are clouds without water. And he's borrowing a picture from the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14 said, says, He that boasts of a gift, but not, not, uh, he that boasts that he can give something to you, but can't, is like a cloud without rain. So these, these teachers come and they say, I have something to teach you. I have truth to give you. I can give you peace. I can give you life by my words and they don't deliver. They simply put people's hopes up, and their hopes get dashed. They promise people liberty, Peter says in Second Peter. They promise people liberty and peace, but what they give them is bondage and anxiety. Anxiety in their conscience, because their message does not actually uh, settle the conscience. Only the blood of Christ can settle a man's conscience. 
You might tell someone all day, don't worry, God's not going to judge you. Don't worry, God's not going to condemn. Don't worry, God's not going to send you down. Don't worry, God's a forgiving God. Without ever mentioning the blood of Christ, that might appease you, appease you for a short little while, but you have a conscience that God gave you. And your conscience accuses you, it says in Romans chapter 2, doesn't it? It accuses you. It's, in Romans it says, they know they're worthy of death. And you know that there's something, God's just not going to forgive you, that if anyone is just in this world, it's God. So your conscience is never ultimately settled through their message, but also judgment day will come. Even if a person has a peace that is a false peace, it's going to be taken away from them, their hope will be dashed, for on judgment day they will be condemned. And so the false teachers cannot give what they promise. They are clouds without water. The third picture Jude gives is that they are autumn trees. Some translations say they're withered trees, but most scholars think that the best translation is that they are autumn trees without fruit. Now he comes to the land. He's got a picture from the sea. He's got a picture from the air. He's now got a picture from earth. Autumn trees without fruit. Recently, I went to my in-laws, the Kleins, and they have lots of fruit trees in their backyard. And in the past few years, there was no fruit on those trees uh, at, at the time of autumn. But this year, um, we were outside, and all those trees were just overflowing with plums and apricots and apples. And it was really a fascinating thing. I was like, hey, this is really amazing. And I loved walking in between the trees and looking at all the fruit that was on the trees. And it was autumn, because at this time of year, that's when the fruit is supposed to be there. And there it was. And it was delightful and it was wonderful. What Jude is saying is that these are trees without fruit at the time when they should have fruit. William Tyndale, in his famous translation of the Bible, translated this way, this way trees without fruit at gathering time. Trees without fruit at gathering time. So you're excited that, that the fruit is going to be there and you go out there and all the tree is barren. Maybe it has an appearance of fruit because it's leafy, kind of like when Jesus saw the fig tree that he cursed because the fig tree promised fruit. And when Jesus, who was at a distance, saw it, got excited, got his hopes up, thought, hmm, there's going to be some, some fruit here for me to eat because I'm hungry and I like figs. And Jesus walks up to the tree and we know Jesus like figs, that's true. And uh, there was no fruit on it. And Jesus immediately saw a lesson here. Jesus immediately saw this was a lesson that there are, just like there are people, just like there are trees that appear to have fruit, promise fruit and don't have any, there are people who promise fruit and don't have any. And Jesus cursed the fig tree to give us an illustration that people who are like that will be also cursed. And it was Jesus who cursed it. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jude describes the tree as it really is, not as it appears. Because if, if it really appeared this way, doubly dead, uprooted, I don't think anyone would be attracted to such a tree, right? You'd not think a tree had fruit on it if it was doubly dead and uprooted, right? You wouldn't walk up to him and say, I'm going to follow this guy. He's got some good things to teach me. He can promise me life. He's got fruit. They appear 
to be good trees, but Jude says this is how God sees these men. God sees these men as twice dead, meaning they're not just a dead tree. I'm sure many of you have seen dead trees, right, that are upright. They're, they're still rooted. They're still in the ground. They're still up, but they're dead. There's no leaves. There's no fruit. They're dead, but they're doubly dead, Jude says, because they're uprooted. These are the kind of trees that have been pulled out of the ground, and they're just laying on the, on the ground, and they're rotted. You know those trees, they're so raw you can kick them and it's like they have no firmness at all and you kick it and there's a whole bunch of bugs inside, right? That's what these trees are like. That's what these men are like. One commentator puts it this way, they are twice dead for the dying year is a symbol of death and being plucked up by the roots is a symbol of the second death from which there is no return to life. It's a scary thing to be like that. I mean, how many of you want to be seen by God as a rotting tree like that? The fourth picture that Jude shows, he goes back to the sea. Verse 13. He says, there are wild waves of the sea. Now, the idea here of being a wild wave is literally untamed or without order or restless. There's an allusion in Isaiah 57 verse 20 to this and it says, the wicked are like the raging waves of the sea which cannot rest. And the idea here is that the wicked are, are restless. They're always, they're not settled. They're casting up all the time. They're, they're um, tumultuous. They're without order and they're untamed. A wild wave also breaks its, uh, breaks its borders. It, they overflow. They overflow their borders and flood things. And this is the idea here of the picture. He's saying these men are like wild waves. And the restlessness, both in Isaiah and here in Jude, produces something. In Isaiah it says, the wicked are like the raging sea, which can't find rest, which casts up dirt and mud. But here, Jude says, these wild waves cast up foam, cast up their own shame like foam. So this restlessness, this untamed nature, casts up something or produces something. Now I would encourage you to go online and go to YouTube and Google uh, or search for a place called Alexandra, Alexandra Headland in Australia on the, sun, on the Sunshine Coast, which is on the coast of East Australia. I typed this in. I looked up uh, sea foam or foam coming on the sea, and I found this really interesting news article on there. And in this place, the city of Alexandria Headland on the Sunshine, sunshine Coast, East Australia, um, the entire downtown area of the city, or at least the part of the downtown area that was next to the sea, was in entirely filled with sea foam because the sea was rough and the waves were big and it produced all this foam and it carried all this foam into the sea, got into buildings, through windows, everywhere. There was all this sea foam just blowing around everywhere. Like a, it looked like a lot of snow all over the place. And they were interviewing people saying, I've never seen anything like this. All this foam. And the foam was dirty and it carried lice-like bugs. It was itchy. It was everywhere. Yeah. Jude is saying that's what their shame is like. 
What they do, they're, 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 they're breaking the boundaries, they're untamed, they're not listening to God, they're not respecting God's word, they're restless, they're not submitting to the way of God. What that does is it produces shame. Shame, shame everywhere. And yet the amazing thing about it, even though this shame is obvious and disgusting to those who understand they actually glory in this shame. They're glorying in the fact that they're untamed. They're glorying in what it produces. They think it's glory. They think that they're so great. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, There are many who walk contrary, who are enemies to the cross of Christ, who glory in their shame. And so this is how God sees them. They're just producing all this disgusting, itchy, dirty stuff. It's filling the church. And yet they're thinking, how wonderful. But how shameful it is for a person to not fear God. I think I've been struck by that more and more recently, that when I meet people who have no fear of God, when I meet people who speak against God without any fear, without any pause, without any reflection that, hold on a second, God created the heavens and the earth. Where was I when he did all that? Who am I to instruct God and be his counselor? Who am I to be God's judge? Who am I to point the finger at him and say, I think you're doing it wrong, I would have done it better. But there's people who say these things without pause, and it's shameful, and they will be ashamed on Judgment Day. The last picture Jude gives is back in the sky or beyond the sky in the heavens. They are wandering stars. In the Greek, this literally means stars that go astray. It's the same Greek word that he used of Balaam in verse 19. They have, uh, for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And here it says, there are stars that go astray. In the Greek, the word is plane, which means to go astray. Stars that go astray. Did you know that our word planet actually comes from the word plane? That the original meaning, the original word comes from the idea that planets are wandering stars. There, in, to the ancient, there was dip, a difference between fixed stars and wandering stars. Fixed stars were the stars that in the night, when you looked up at the night sky and you observed it for a long time, there were stars that didn't appear to move at all. But there were other stars that appeared to move all over the night sky. And every night it would be different. And, you're not, and, and the ancients were troubled by this, actually. They liked the order of the night sky. They were troubled by these wandering stars that didn't seem to have any order whatsoever. They just kind of moved around. And they called those ones planets. Well, what we know is the reason why they move so much is because they're a lot closer to us. And so these planets are close to us and they move throughout the night sky. But the, the illustration still stands. These are wandering stars. It troubled the ancients because it seemed like they were out of the system or they were not orderly. And this is exactly what Jude is saying, that these men are out of the system. They're not orderly. They're not submitting to God's command. 
There was a relationship in the Jewish mind between stars and angels. And they thought of wandering stars as fallen angels. They thought of shooting stars as angels that God was condemning and judging and casting away into the darkness of blackness forever. Although Judy is not talking about angels, but men. As J.B. Mayer says, the subject of the comparison is men who profess to give light and guidance as the pole star does to mariners but are our only blind leaders of the blind, centers and propagators of plane, destined to be swallowed up in everlasting darkness. How do you, how, how, if, you're, if you're a sailor, how do you look at a wandering star and, and, and set a course by that? You can't. You can't navigate through the, through the night based upon wandering stars. And this is the point. These teachers are really wandering stars. Though they boast, as, uh, they boast themselves to be fixed stars. You can follow me. I will guide you. I am a light in the darkness. But what they are are blind guides, leaders of the blind, who will be cast into everlasting darkness. One translator, or one commentator says this, they belong not to the system, They stray at random and without law. Interesting. And must at last be severed from the lights which rule while they are ruled. They must at last be severed from the lights which rule, which is the lights that govern the earth. The lights which rule while they are ruled, meaning that true teachers lead because they are led. True teachers are able to be guides because they are guided by the true light, because they are guided by the word of God. Not so these false teachers. And Jude tells us here, how long will they be in the blackness of darkness? Is there an end to their condemnation? According to this verse 13, for whom the black darkness has been reserved for how long? Forever. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? Forever. That for many people in this world, there is a forever of blackness and darkness. And in verse 7, the punishment of eternal fire. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. God's justice is real, it's frightening, and it's just. Spurning God deserves forever. The punishment fits the crime. And there is no punishment that could possibly fit the crime of spurning God than the punishment that is everlasting and forever. And it's a horrible thought to, to, to think. And it, causes, it should cause us to shudder when we really think about it and reflect on it. But there are those who will be lost forever. So it's amazing how they feast without fear, even though this is how God actually sees them. This is how God sees them, and they're destined to destruction and fire and blackness forever, and yet they eat with you without fear, glorying in their own shame, making shipwreck of people's faith. So here we have five pictures from nature, all vivid, describing these men. Just want to ask, just want to ask you, um, do you see people like that the way that God sees them? 
As we've already said, that there are many people today who profess to be Christians who yet deny the cross of Christ. But for many of us, we just kind of, yeah, they're, they're denying the cross of Christ. That's not right. But do you think of them the way God thinks of them? Do you see that when God looks at them, they are raging waves? They are doubly dead, uprooted trees. They're wandering stars about to be shot into the darkness. They're clouds without water. They're hidden reefs. Do we see it with the urgency and seriousness that Jude wants us to see it so that we can earnestly contend for the faith and as we're going to see also earnestly contend for the souls of these people? But if we kind of just say, well, they're wrong, but that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's no big deal. Then we're completely missing Jude's point. It is a big deal. And it's not something that we can tolerate and just allow to go on. Lastly, in verse 14 and 15, Jude quotes a prophecy of Enoch, also used to describe these false teachers. Now it says here that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And you probably are familiar with the book of Genesis. If you go to the genealogy in Genesis, starting from Adam, count seven down, you'll get Enoch. And what's special about Enoch is that the Bible says that he was taken. That Enoch didn't actually see death. But Enoch was one who walked with God and then was taken. And of course, this caused many, much speculation about Enoch. What, what was he taken for? Uh, I mean, it's amazing such a grand claim like that, something that almost no one experiences, and yet there's only maybe two verses about this man. And so, you know, the imagination runs wild about this man. What was so special about this guy? Well, the Bible simply says he had faith, right? And God chose to take him. It's not that he found a secret staircase to heaven. The quotation actually comes from a pseudopographical work called the Book of Enoch, which simply means it's a work that it's, it's purported to be written by Enoch, but we know that it was not written by Enoch. And so there's lots of discussions about this. Why does Jude quote from a pseudopographical work? Why does he do that if it's not written by Enoch? Well, what we can say is that this is a true prophecy because Jude quoted it. So this doesn't mean that Jude is saying this book is canonical or this book is all true, but that this book does preserve a true prophecy from Enoch, the seventh from Adam. The prophecy is actually written in the prophetic past tense, which my Bible, the New American Standard, captures and other Bibles don't. The prophetic past tense, meaning it's spoken about a future event as if it was past. Behold, the Lord came, past tense, with many thousands of his holy ones. The prophetic past tense is a common uh, way that the prophets would write. Think of one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament that we believe as Christians. Um, He was despised and rejected of men. We did esteem him, stricken of God and smitten, and we hid our face from him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Or we were healed. So, long before that ever even happened, it was spoken of in the past tense, 
because it's so certain that it will happen. This is called proleptic. You say something as past because it's so certain that it will happen in the future. It might be easier, however, to put this into the future tense for us English speakers because we're not used to the prophetic past tense. What does Jude say, or what does Enoch say that Jude quotes? First, behold. Look. Get this. Keep it before your eyes. Now here, he's telling, this is an imperative. This is something he's telling you to do. And so this is something that at any time, in any day, you can stop and you can look. And you should. And let's just stop right now and look together. What we see concerning the future, because Enoch is calling us to look and see the future. He's saying, behold, look at what is coming. Look at what is coming. And one of the amazing things as Christians is we can do that, right? That we actually have the ability to take a, take a break throughout our day and to look into the future. How can we do that? Not because we have a crystal ball, not because we have a magic mirror, but because we have the Word of God. And God has spoken and told us what's to come. That's a huge advantage, isn't it? Any general on a battlefield would love to be able to see the future, right? Huge advantage for us as Christians. We ought to behold more because what we see concerning the future will determine the experience of our present. It will change your day. It will change your outlook if you can look in the future and see this is what's to come. And so let's look. And what do we see? Or what is Enoch and Jude wanting us to see in the future that's coming? What's coming? Yes. Behold, the Lord comes. Now, let's just look at that for a minute, brothers and sisters. The Lord comes. God has spoken this. This is, as, this is proleptic. This is going to happen. And we can every day stop and look and see, the Lord is coming. What a powerful, powerful truth. Next time you're in an argument with your wife or your spouse or someone, why don't you stop and look into the future? The Lord is coming. This is not a big deal. You know? Next, when you get into a car accident, the Lord is coming. When you win the lottery, when something good happens, look into the future and remember, the Lord is coming. This trumps everything else that's happening on this earth, doesn't it? When you see the wicked prospering, the Lord is coming. Don't put your hope in little things. Don't put your hope in whether your kids are going to turn out okay. I mean, it's good that they do, but don't put all your hope in that. The Lord is coming, right? The Lord is coming. Your family is not the most important thing in, in, your, in the world. And if you think it is, you've missed the boat. True? It's not very popular to say, but it's true. Your physical well-being is not the most important thing in this life, right? You get sick with cancer, the Lord is coming. Okay? Um, you lose all your money, not the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world is the fact that God is coming. Look what he's coming with. Ten thousands or thousands of his holy ones. 
Then the Greek, the word is myrias, which is where we get the word myriads. It, this is not meant to be a literal figure. Okay, how many angels is he specifically coming with? He's coming with myriads of angels. Look at this. This is really important. This is really big. There's a world that we haven't even seen that's a lot more important and real and, and, and massive and significant than what we have yet seen with our own eyes. What power is behind God? Myriads and myriads and myriads of angels at his command. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven. And he doesn't need any single one of them. And he's coming with them. What is he coming to do? He's coming to execute judgment. That's what we are to look into the future and see. There is coming a day when God is coming with myriads and myriads and myriads of his angelic host and he is coming to this earth with all of its ridiculousness and all of its stuff that the world thinks is important and all of the things that concern men and all of the complexities and God is coming with all of these angels to execute judgment. On who? According to the text. More specifically. Yes. Specifically on all. <laughs> to execute judgment upon all. There's not any tribe, person, individual, family that is exempt from this. God is coming to execute judgment upon all. This is a very old word from God. This is something that Enoch even knew. And I'm sure Adam knew this. This is something very old that God has waited a long time for. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 14, God says this, I have for a long time held my peace, or I have been silent for a long, long time. Now, like a woman in labor, I will cry, I will destroy and devour at one time. I have not seen a woman in labor except in like a video. But what I have seen, and for you who have been there, that's a really intense thing, isn't it? That's like a really intense... Inhibitions are kind of gone and you're just, you're just crying out. It's loud, it's intense, it's fierce. And this is, the, this is one of the uh, illustrations God uses to describe what it's going to be like when he shows up. Imagine God like a woman in labor. Okay? Have you ever thought about that? And the idea is that he's like clawing and grabbing and devouring and destroying at once. And he's for a long time held his silent, been silent and held his peace. You see, this is, this is a long time God has been waiting we have not seen anything really like this before. God has shown us his judgments here and there. We have never seen a judgment that's going to be like this on all and without any mercy. 
What judgments we have seen in the past, all of them contain some kind of a mercy, some kind of look and see so you can be saved. I'm judging you guys so you can turn. This is not about turning anymore. This is not about mercy anymore. This is not about Him coming to give you a chance anymore. This is God coming to judge the world. Time is up. This is really intense. We have not seen anything like it before. And this is what we believe as Christians and what we must preach as Christians. Judgment Day. And we must never, ever cease proclaiming the reality of Judgment Day. Without this Judgment Day, there would be no gospel to preach at all. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, the apostle says that God is going to judge the entire world according to my gospel. The gospel has to do with judgment day, doesn't it? Good news. Good news. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation from what? Salvation from the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven right now and which will ultimately come on Judgment Day without any mercy. That's what the good news is. You can be saved from this. You can be saved from the wrath of God. Now, if God is not a God of wrath, then there's not really anything to say, right? You're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You're all fine. And you don't need Jesus. You don't need bloody sacrifice. You don't need to put your faith in Him. Because don't worry, God is not just. So, carry on. We only have a gospel to preach because there is a judgment day. Jude Jude quotes Enoch saying that Judgment Day will be a day of great proving. It's not going to be a day where simply every person is suddenly dead. Like no one has a chance to think. It'll be a day when the whole world finally awakens. The day when everyone understands. Imagine that. What a day that's going to be when all the earth suddenly knows. Judgment Day will be a day of great proving, a day of great conviction, Enoch says. All people will then know that they have, un- an ungod- they have been ungodly. All of their ungodly deeds they will be convicted of that they have done in an ungodly way. Notice the repetition of the word ungodly. This is one of the most important words in the book of Jude. He uses it not just here, but before. And it's one of the most important concepts to grasp. The word ungodly is not a general word for wickedness. Okay? And that's the way we often use it in the English. Ungodly just is a general word for wickedness. Ungodly actually in the Greek means irreverence. And this is the point that on Judgment Day, the world will be convicted, convinced, it will be proved, everyone will know that they have been irreverent against God, that they have not feared God, that they have not given God his due, that they have been evil servants against the God to whom they owe their worship. You see, this is 
what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 was the beginning of all of men's sins, was that we did not give God glory. We did not revere Him. We do not fear God. And so it will be on the judgment day. The great convincing will not just be, that deed was wrong, that deed was wrong, that deed was wrong. People usually know that certain deeds are wrong, right? Everyone basically admits they've done wrong deeds. What they will be convinced of on that day is that they have been ungodly. Even though men pretend to be godly. They pretend to show reverence to God. But perhaps the most profound thing here is in verse 16, or sorry, verse 15 at the end. Not just the deeds that have been, con- been committed in an ungodly way, but I believe Jude wants us to, he draws our attention to this. That on that day, men will be convinced of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Harsh. What a, what a word. Rough. It, it's the same word actually that's used uh, how Joseph spoke roughly to his brothers or Rehoboam spoke roughly to his subjects. You're, you're coarse. You're, you're hard. You're like sandpaper. You're harsh in your words. And here's what this verse is saying is that people have spoken hard things against God. Have they? I mean, people haven't just spoken false things about God. They've spoken hard, harsh things about God, right? In abundance. And on that day, men will see how extremely careless and evil their words against God were. How cruel they were. God is barbaric. God is stupid. I would have done it better than God. God is a jerk. Why would God allow this to happen to me? He must be a bad God. I don't want to worship a God like that. Many more could be reproduced. And what men were going to realize on that day, brothers and sisters, one of the most amazing things that's going to happen on Judgment Day all these things we hear all the time, people are going to realize that they're false. No. That is not what God is like. People will realize God is not barbaric. God is not stupid. God is not a jerk. God is the only wise God. God alone is love. God has suffered more than any other. And yet I have constantly pointed the finger at him and accused him of being hard and callous and unfeeling. And that he has suffered more than I even have. Because God has cared more about people than I have. God has cared about more people than I have. God has cared more deeply than I have. And God cares about justice more than everyone else does. Which makes, puts God in a kind of a hard spot, doesn't it? It's kind of hard to really, truly, actually care about justice and really, actually, truly care about people. That's hard, because we're not in that situation, are we? None of us are. 
And God is. And yet men constantly speak harsh things against God. What they'll realize though is, no, this is the God who died for our sins. This is the God whose justice and whose love necessitated from the depths of his own nature the cross. This is the God of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the God who offers a gift to all mankind. This is a God who offers salvation freely to undeserving, godless, careless, evil sinners. Totally free at the expense of his own blood. God could not be more wonderful. God could not be more beautiful. Men will hate the things that they have spoken against him. And so in verse 16, Jude says, these are grumblers. This is exactly the point. These are murmurers. These guys find fault with God. They're always mumbling under their breath about God. God is not like that. God is barbaric. He's like that. He doesn't require sacrifices. That, I don't want to worship a God that requires sacrifices. He wouldn't be good. And they're doing it because of what they don't understand. They're following after their own desires. They're speaking arrogantly. They're flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude has just described the Lucius's of the world. Men who creep in, professing Christ but denying him, professing to worship God and love God and revere God, but all along they are ungodly. This is what they really are like. And let us not be deceived by them. Let us not be taken in by the image of people who are pious and seem to have a show of godliness, but they actually are like what Jude is describing here. They're dangerous, they're deceptive, and they're actually dead. But for us who know Christ Jesus in truth, for us who know the gospel, we have the privilege of the opposite. We have the privilege of being blessings at our love feasts. We have the privilege of serving one another in truth. We have the privilege, privilege of carrying blessings in our words like rain and like fruit. Because we adhere to God's truth, therefore judgment and shame will not be our end, but glory and eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything is the opposite for those who believe the truth. And instead of speaking harsh words against God, brothers and sisters, let us glorify God and praise God and honor God with the fruit of our lips. Only we as Christians can actually speak praise to God. What an awesome privilege it is. Let us therefore do that. Let us praise God and worship him for who he actually is. And let us also earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, realizing that the war that we are in is fiercer today than it's ever been. I'll just leave us with this line from a familiar hymn. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at who you are. Give us a deeper understanding and a deeper desire to praise your name. 
Help us to behold the future and the things that you have spoken. Help us to behold you in the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Help us to not lose sight of who you are. May we give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. Make us soldiers who combat these errors. Don't let us be deceived and intimidated. Lord, thank you that you are coming and that all the earth will one day know who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.